0: welcome back friends i'm atika wilbur i'm from the swinomish and tulalip tribes i'm a mama i'm a photographer i'm a wifey now i have a project called project 562 and I'm also the co-host of this fabulous podcast with Dr. Dr. Dez. Hi, Dez. Hey, folks.
1: I'm Dr. Dr. Desi. I am a citizen of the Northern Cheyenne Nation and Chicana. I'm a professor at UCLA. I direct the Data Warriors Lab. I'm a relative. I'm a researcher. I'm a mama. And it's so great to be back with all of you on another episode of All My Relations.
0: I'm really excited to be continuing this series. This is the third and final part of our series for this season. And I think we come to a really special place here with this episode because we're thinking about indigenous sovereignty and black liberation and how those movements can work together for coalition building in real world powerful ways. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there is a shared experience between
1: indigenous peoples surviving genocide, colonization, assimilation, all the things, right? We are still here. There's a direct connection between that and all that black people have endured in this country. Black people of African descent, right? Folks being removed from their homelands and voluntarily brought to this country, enslaved, all to further the aims of racial capitalism. And white supremacy and all the horrific shit that black peoples are continuing to have to endure right at the hands of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so I think ultimately we have so much to gain from standing alongside and fighting alongside each other. And we have everything to lose from continuing to stay so disconnected mm-hmm. and continuing to see our futures as separate. Mm
0: hmm. So for this episode, we welcome Nikita Oliver. Nikita is the Executive Director of Creative Justice, an art-based healing space for youth and young adults. They hold a law degree from the University of Washington, and Nikita has been involved in organizing and supporting racial justice movements, working at the intersection of arts, law, and education for some time. I'm a huge fan of Nikita. I've seen Nikita get in front of a crowd of people and rile them up and lead thousands into protest i mean nikita's dope (laughs) yeah
1: i mean they could lead us anywhere we would follow
0: (laughs) like for real nikita's
1: the real deal and i have so much respect for the work that they do in their own community but also on the work that they do to bring together all of our communities you know under one umbrella under one shared aim that is freedom for all of us Mm. in in the ways in which we need to be free right Mm. So we sat down to interview Nikita and they are amazing. So dope, we learned so much. There's so much that we hope you, our audience, gains from this discussion, whether you are black, whether you are native, whether you are white, whether you come from the myriad backgrounds that you all come from. We believe that this discussion holds lessons for all of us and I'm excited to get into it.
2: Sorry.
0: <laughs> All my relations.
2: So, my name is Nikita Oliver. I use they, them pronouns. And uh, I live in the Duwamish territories in the, a place that most folks would call Seattle. I moved to Seattle. Uh, And and to the Duwamish Territories in 2004 from uh, the state that people call Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I was really young Mm -hmm. and very unschooled about my own story and the stories around me. I grew up in a place where the history that I was taught was probably uh, the worst kind of history you could get taught. Like, just think about the history book that has the most erasure in it. And that's the history book that mm-hmm. I studied if we had books at all. Mm-hmm. And so moving to Seattle, going to Seattle Pacific University, where I was one of very few black mixed students, uh, I was not out as a queer person. I was not out as a non-binary person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in a place of just questioning religion. I had come to like encounter through my own study of how religion had been used as a tool for oppression. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, that was such a, it's such a focal point of where I grew up mm-hmm. in the Bible Belt and was just having this major clash of worlds. And so I started studying sociology and for the first time had language to actually talk about not just what I was observing, but what I was feeling and then give, give meaning and, and context to it. And so being at Seattle Pacific University, as you can imagine, we're a predominantly white very wealthy, very religious, liberal arts school, I felt very lonely. Hmm. So I immediately started looking for, in the city, where was there a community that I could find people who reflected more of who I understood myself to be at that time? And it Hmm. happened to be the South End of Seattle, the Rainier Beach community, hanging out with young people at Graham Hill Elementary School. And I was working in an after-school program where it was 100% black indigenous brown young people who for a myriad of reasons were often being kicked out of their classrooms Mm -hmm. and that was kind of my introduction outside of my own personal life but like in terms of like being in community to just the ways in which inequity and oppression uh manifest even as it relates to like our children in a setting like school where that should be a place where it doesn't exist you know of all places (laughs) at school with our babies Mm -hmm. um they should be safe from those things Mm. and it really just spurred me into a place of asking well what can i do like how do we change these things and it's not that i hadn't seen oppression or injustice prior to that but i just didn't even it never hit my mind that i had a role in undoing things i i felt up until about the age of 18 that i was just affected by these forces around me and that was going to be life and leaving Indiana to come, you know, to the Pacific Northwest for schools, to the Coastal States territories, just shifted my mind of what was possible. Hmm. And, and that kind of started my journey as an organizer.
0: Hmm.
1: As a community organizer and leader of the Black Lives Matter movement in Seattle, can you tell us some stories about how you have partnered with Native organizers and communities here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even view myself as a leader as much as, you know, the way that society works, we tend to pick a few visible people. And so I feel the responsibility of that. Uh, and about, it was around 2013 when Trayvon Martin was murdered and um, a lot of people took to the streets. You mm-hmm. know, he was murdered by a vigilante and the hashtag mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter really started to catch. You know, the internet for us was kind of like a very innovative moment. And in, mm-hmm. in the civil rights era, it was TV. Mm -hmm. And you could see visibly what was happening. The Internet really opened the door for on a global scale to be able to talk about the ways in which anti-Blackness shows up in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simultaneously, I was getting to know organizers like Matt Remley Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and really being introduced to how important it is to understand the space that you're living Mm -hmm. and the land that you're on and the connection to native peoples. And that was the first time I really started thinking about how black liberation and native sovereignty are actually two things on this landmass on Turtle Island that are inextricably interconnected. Mm-hmm. And that that's, that's actually power. Mm-hmm. You know, We could see it from the place of oppression and understanding the ways in which white supremacy and colonialism has impacted our lives. And we can see it from the place of us being aligned and working in, in a principled way with principled struggle actually gives us a lot of power and even Mm -hmm. though our experience of oppression is not the same Mm -hmm. it is the same oppressor you know Mm -hmm. we're trying to push back against and dismantle the same system that has harmed us and our ancestors for a very long time Mm -hmm. and so uh fast forward a little bit to 2016 when standing rock in august of 2016 really just you know the internet once again allowed us to see what was happening on the front lines Mm -hmm. and videos started to come up of water protectors being brutalized by law enforcement in standing Mm -hmm. rock which was exactly the same thing that protesters in the black lives matter movement were experiencing in cities all over turtle island Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and seeing the similarities and knowing the ways in which um on the front lines of the black lives matter movement we had been pushing back legal observers Mm -hmm. or having legal teams you know, filming things, getting supplies to protesters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you started to see people organize to get those same support to water protectors mm-hmm. in Standing Rock. So I went to Standing Rock with a group of friends. Because um, at the time, I was I was a new baby lawyer, and I was like, <laughs> "What do I do with these skills?" You know, because honestly, going to law school is probably one of the hardest things I've ever chosen to do. Like. I don't believe in these colonial laws, and yet I have to function in them. So mm-hmm, yeah. let me go get the tools to figure out how to navigate them and for my community to figure out how to navigate them. And I was like, I was serving as a legal, a legal observer in Seattle often when there were protests, and I knew people were organizing legal observers in Standing Rock, so I went
0: mm-hmm.
2: and served with the Red Owl Legal Collective for about eight days. And it was a really life-changing moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just because of what I observed and seeing how the water protectors were self-organized and the community that was existing there, but we stayed um, in, in an area of the camp where mostly queer-identified folks were staying and there were a lot of two-spirit elders. Mm-hmm. And getting to like listen to them tell stories mm-hmm. was such an incredible gift mm-hmm. to have in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know a lot of queer, non-binary, black elders mm-hmm. in the city where I live. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because we haven't survived. Mm. And I think that that narrative is also true for a lot of Native communities in terms of what happens to our elders, especially those who have different intersections and their identities. Mm. And listening to their struggles, listening to their joys, listening to their spirit uh, really informed some steps moving forward for me. So when we returned back from Standing Rock, It was like a day or two before Trump was elected. Mm. So uh, as you can imagine, things were already feeling pretty heated. Mm. And also folks like Matt Rimley and Roxanne White were organizing for the no-doppel work in Seattle. So getting our money as a city out of Wells Fargo, which was a bank that was invested uh, or is invested in oil pipelines. These are also the exact same banks that are invested in prisons. Mm -hmm. And so it really started to highlight also The intersection between uh, fights within the prison industrial complex or against the prison industrial complex and who's invested in those prisons, Mm -hmm. who's invested in these oil and and tar sand projects, and also who's invested in continuing to see communities like the black and native community live in oppression and live without access to resources we need. And that intersection became a very dynamic place of organizing in the city. Mm. And BLM organizers that had been organizing around issues of police brutality and the prison industrial complex began to also organize alongside our native relatives who were doing the work in the city around pipelines and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that unity drew even more attention to the fact that these Mm. banks are invested in brutalizing BIPOC communities all across the United States, but even more across the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what ended up happening
2: I mean in short we won right. <laughs> uh, and and a lot of you know we shared so many tactics mm. so prior to um, that particular fight in 2012 the no new youth jail fight started mm-hmm. King County uh, put a ballot initiative out to build a new children's jail they called it they're calling it the children and family justice center mm-hmm. and they were going to spend or they ended up spending $233 million on a facility that, wow. that does not put anything new or good or better into our communities. Mm-hmm. And so some of our tactics around that was shutting down council chambers at the county level, showing up with tons of people to Seattle City Council, reading our prisons obsolete into the record, uh, doing um, protests or dramatic theatrical demonstrations, and those same tactics that we had been using uh, earlier then got used in mm. 2016, 2017 to have this other fight. And because we had seen these things happen and work,
0: mm. we were
2: really significantly able to align our movements. And at the same time, each of them was very culturally distinctive. Uh, I remember, you know, every uh, No Doppel protest I went to, there were drummers, there was song, there was sage in the air, and and that uh, cultural element also then like informed more of our black lives matter protests, like Mm -hmm. understanding that even within our culture, we have ways of providing cleansing. We have songs that we can sing and these things are both our protection and they are also a demonstration of power. Um, And just continuing to see the ways in which we skill shared, we energy shared, we story shared, and then we've been showing up for each other ever since.
0: Mm. Mm. This system that we're living in is designed to continue to pit black people, and Native people against one another, you know, and so when we're talking about coalition building, which is ultimately I think what this conversation is about, you know, is when we're imagining a future, how have you in your own experience seen communities overcome that sort of bipolarization and, and how can people learn from your experiences?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think both about anti-blackness, but I also think about like anti-indigeneity. Mm. Um, both are a part of of white supremacy and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, anti-blackness is used to make it okay to criminalize and to other black peoples uh, as a way of, of keeping us down. But also we live under under racialized capitalism. So there has to be a poor underemployed working class in order for capitalism to continue to move that group of people has historically and presently is often black peoples Mm -hmm. um, who are criminalized by the criminal punishment system and through that often pushed into that that space but i also think anti-indigeneity is a part of that Um, and it often shows up in the ways in which we erase the existence of native peoples in order to justify living on stolen land Mm -hmm. and we see this Mm -hmm. from all folks we see this from We see this from brown folks from all over the world that now live on Turtle Island. And it also happens from black peoples of ignoring the existence of our native relatives still being here. The flip side of that is I think anti-blackness and non-black communities is also very real. Mm. And these things are used by white supremacy and colonialism in order to pit us against each other, Mm -hmm. to further other us, other each other. And, you know, we talk about divide and conquer white supremacy and colonialism have the divide and conquer strategy on point Mm. because instead of fighting the system that has an interest in oppressing all of us, we end up fighting against each other or othering each other or ignoring each other or in the case of anti-blackness, criminalizing each other, those Mm. black people, the way those black people do these things and justifying things like inequities in the criminal punishment system or the prison industrial complex. And we might even see... The fights of black peoples as not our own Mm, mm -hmm. and i think that that does happen uh and 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 lots of people of color communities but also including within the native community Mm. but that being said like I as a black person and a non-native person can't say that without also acknowledging that anti-indigeneity or ignoring the existence of native peoples or erasure Mm -hmm. is also a very real thing that allows the colonial government to continue to legitimate stealing land, staying on stolen land, and not getting to a place
1: of like real reparations with native peoples. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about categories, let's talk about terms, because you know, they do have power. They do, because they exert power over us in a system that relies on categories, right? To, to, to differentiate us, so BIPOC. Do you use it in your community organizing work? Do you think it's useful? Does it bring people together or does it just erase our individual realities and experiences and origins? That's a great question. I mean, I do use it, but I use it with like an asterisk, Mm. you know,
2: Um, and I think we need to use all language that is categorizing and labeling people with an asterisk. And by that, I mean, understanding it's always more nuanced, more complex, more detailed than a uh, word like BIPOC mm. can actually talk about. Uh, I often will use cutie BIPOC, to- cutie BIPOC thinking about queer, trans, black, indigenous people of color, because I think often, um, especially our trans relatives, get completely erased. And so I think there, there are elements of this language that's useful. I think identity politics has taught us to understand that oppression plays out differently for different people. Mm-hmm. It's not the same, it might be the same oppressor, but we don't necessarily experience it the same. There's an Mm -hmm. article called The Three Pillars of White Supremacy and Heteropatriarchy that I think is a useful read because it helps us understand the different ways that white supremacy manifests itself in black communities uh, in native communities and then in in other people of color communities. And specifically, this article talks about what is called quote unquote orientalism. It's Mm -hmm. a complete othering Mm -hmm. of groups that are not black or native but are here on Turtle Island, and it uses it as a way of keeping a xenophobic lens on the world, mm. completely othering folks, so that the United States can keep its war on terrorism or continue to feed its war machine by fear of the other. And we've really seen this mm. um, in a very visible way uh, from 2017 to 2020, um, and it, it's been always been present, but it was just very visible then. Mm. In terms of like anti-blackness as being one of those pillars, it really categorizes black folks as a criminalized underclass Mm. uh here on turtle island and then it erases native peoples because it has to justify the claim to the land Mm -hmm. Um, and then heteropatriarchy just this idea that there are only two genders and you must have the nuclear family Mm -hmm. like that families can't have any other structure and that these are the only acceptable ways of being and anything else that's outside of it is a moral wrong and in some instances is made illegal Mm. and so when I think about terms like QD BIPOC, it is an attempt in a very short way to tell somebody a whole lot that they might actually not know, mm. right? Like I, I've read that article probably 10 times over the course of my informal and formal education But I know tons of people who have never encountered that particular article or explanation for the ways in which white supremacy and imperialism works. And so I try to be thoughtful about who I use what language with. Mm -hmm. Am I talking to a group of people that might have the historical, political, sociological analysis to have a depth of understanding with that word? Or am I talking to a group of folks that I actually need to talk specifically about black folks, specifically about Native people, specifically about Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, you know, Do I need to be specific because this audience of folks that I'm in relationship with at that moment doesn't have the underlying information to actually use that that information in a useful way? And we're seeing this happen right now. It's playing out in real time. Mm. I see it in terms of um, how identity politics in this last election Mm. caused a lot of drama, right? (laughs) Um, Kamala Harris is black and Asian. She is the child of, of people who emigrated to Turtle Island. And a lot of folks were telling me that if I don't support Kamala Harris, then I'm like, not really about black people. And I was like, well, why is that? And they're like, well, because she's a woman of color. She's a black woman. And for them, that inherently meant that I should be like, this should be like my next figurehead. Mm. But reality is I also work in doing things to undo the criminal punishment system. Mm. And Kamala Harris has built a huge amount of her career Mm. on police and prisons and prosecution that actually has criminalized the black community in a lot of ways. And that for me is when identity politics can actually be very distorting, not wrong, but distorting, because it can cause us to not look deeper for the nuance or the history or the analysis that tells us about what will actually serve black peoples. It's not just simply having black people in elected office, Mm -hmm. it's having black people with the right analysis and the right vision and the willingness to make that a real thing. Mm. Um, And I think that's true in a lot of communities. So when we use phrases like cutie BIPOC or BIPOC, I really think we have to be thoughtful about who we're talking to. Do these folks i'm having conversation with actually have the analysis to know what all went into that one very small word and if they don't i really encourage folks to get more specific about what they're talking about absolutely mm-hmm. that's a good answer
1: yeah <laughs> i, I thought that. about that's it a really lot. Exactly. Care, <laughs> yeah because i've heard native peoples be like bipoc so we're bipoc now I've heard black people be like, "So we can't just be black anymore. We got to be bipoc." You Not know, it's real. like this. You know, and so it's like I, I, I too see the I see the value in some of these aggregate terms. You know, mm-hmm. is particularly in kind of this coalition building work. Um, but similarly to how I consider my own identity, like I'm a Cheyenne woman first. Yes. I mean, you know, even before I'm an indigenous person. Um, so the specificity, I think, there's a level of respect I think that comes with that, right? The the knowing that I or maybe it's maybe it's respect, it's it's an understanding, it's knowing who you're in relation with, which mm-hmm. I think is so powerful. What you said, knowing who who my audience is, who am I in relation with, and how do I need to speak to them, speak with them, be in community with mm-hmm. them, so that it makes it makes sense. That's powerful, you know. We're always being told that, and. T- um, and all I mean, uh, as academics, it's like, don't talk like that, talk different, you know. Or like, my mom is like, Why you don't even make any sense anymore, Desi? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I don't, you're absolutely right, <laughs> I really don't. So, I'll just shut up. And I think um, that's
2: real like, do we make sense to the folks that we want to see moved, in, you know, like forward mm-hmm. or moved in in a more just, more righteous direction? Mm-hmm. Um, Chimamanda says. If you can't say it at a seventh grade level, you probably shouldn't say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just such an, for me, that's an important uh, analysis point though. Is what I'm talking about accessible? Is it digestible? And I think like you point to a really important thing. Like we're not like, I'm not BIPOC as a person. Mm. I am a black mixed queer non-binary person. You know, that that is who I am. And I think about if we use the word BIPOC to talk about a coalition, we also need to like, be specific about who's in that coalition because we'll miss people, right? We'll say BIPOC and it'll be a hundred people and there'll only be one native person, three black people. (laughs) And then like, there might be a lot of other Brown people, but you're literally missing the the two groups of folks that like the United States as an oppressive space was built upon. And I think sometimes BIPOC is used for the purpose of erasure to make organizations or make political things seem like it's diverse and inclusive but because you've aggregated everyone together you're not asking questions about who's missing Mm. um and so i think in doing coalition work Mm. um i've gotten to the place now where i like deuce take steps back Mm. are are like my native relatives here in the space and are they present in a way that there's decision-making power that there's authority power here or is it tokenism Mm. and bipoc can get dangerously close to a space of tokenism Mm. and we see it happen all the time uh, in the way universities or politicians uh or you know different agencies that want to make themselves look inclusive talk about the work that they're doing they will say bipoc and that actually then makes me always ask a deeper question i want to see who's at the table who yes Mm -hmm.
0: Nikita, you do a lot of work around the prison system and you often speak out publicly about defunding the police. And I'm really wondering in your organizing, have you seen a lot of Native people showing up in support of Black Lives Matter?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, in Seattle, you know, our fight for our fight against police brutality is also, um, in the last 10 years, very much tied to the work in organizing the Native community. Um, you know, John T. Williams was murdered in 2010. Uh, Charlene Lyles was murdered in 2017. And, um, you know, Che Taylor and Sean Fior, Uh There's a long list of folks that are uh, Black Pacific Islander Native um, from... Asian communities and so I think what's been very significant um, in in our region is there is a strong intersection not just of black and native folks but black, native, Pacific Islander, Asian American because police brutality here while um, definitely being inflicted at a higher rate against black and native peoples most communities of color have experienced it mm-hmm. and I think that's because our region is actually so white. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of our communities are much smaller than they would be in other parts of Turtle Island, uh, that we experience that heavy. And I have seen the native community show up in a really dynamic way with black organizers. Uh, during the Chop Chaz era, there was actually, uh, and Chop Chaz, for folks who don't know, is the Capitol Hill uh open protests in the capitol hill autonomous zone which i think just mainstream media got a lot of bad press that actually was completely false my mother would call me on a regular basis and be like are you going to like get really hurt Mm -hmm. or like what is happening like my mom thought like seattle was on fire Mm -hmm. and so um you know for anyone who's listening that saw that that media like it's not true we were not on fire for the most part <laughs> while there were some very traumatizing things that happened in the chop chas uh it was no different than the traumatizing things to be quite honest that happened all over our city all the time mm. and in fact there was much more collective care collective response around those traumas when they happened than there was in any other part of the city hmm. and i remember one day us actually um having a ceremony with a number of native organizers um, you know, I think about folks like Ixley or Roxana White or um, Matt Rimley was out there, uh, Patricia. There were just so many people, and I'm kind of naming names because I want to make sure don't nobody listen to this and be like, but you didn't say my name. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I didn't say your name doesn't mean I don't love you. It means my brain lost all the information. Um, but we actually had a ceremony mm-hmm. where people gathered and, and circle happened and ceremony happened and acknowledgement of the land we were on was a constant thing uh, there was not a day that I was out there that I did not see a native auntie or elder or drummer out just walking around the Chop Chaz as an acknowledgement of like this our land you know like that was very strong about it but also an acknowledgement of native sovereignty and black liberation are inextricably interconnected and we know that Police, prisons, colonial courts, criminal courts have all uh, brutalized our communities. And that if we're going to dismantle these things and move beyond them to something that is based in community led, community based collective care, it's actually going to take all of us. And there are going to be cultural frameworks that each of us bring to the work that's going to be transformative in the long run. And I don't think that that was new for at least our region, Mm -hmm. Um, I I can say, like, for sure, at least since 2010, uh, when John T. Williams was murdered, Black and Native folks have been organizing around issues of police brutality um, in a very aligned and dynamic way for at least 11 years. But I'm sure much more before that, because I'm too young to know all (laughs) those years (laughs) prior. But I know, at least starting then, that 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 has definitely been um, an important and powerful dynamic of the work in our region.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think, oh, my mom always talks about how when there was the fish wars happening here, you know, like for the right to, right before Judge Bolt happened and there was standoffs, um, you know, in several places, but big standoffs in Nisqually at Frank's Landing, how the Black Panthers came and with their guns, to you know, like stand off against the FBI with their guns, and then to protect it, to protect, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's she always talks, she always tells me that story. You know, like you have to remember, like that this has been happening for a long time here, not just <laughs> since you've been around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: No. And you know, Aaron Dixon tells similar stories. You know, obviously from the, the position of the Black Panthers, but talks about that mm. about folks showing up uh, in Nisqually with Billy Frank Jr. and and doing that work. Um, and we hear that even from like the Four Amigos with mm. um, Bernie Whitebear and Larry Gossett and um, Roberto Maestas uh, all talking about like the ways in which that work uh, showed up together. Um, and Uncle Bob, I can't can't forget Uncle Bob. You know <laughs> how that all came together, and it was mo- communities from different mm. from different places, but all knew that they have their liberation our liberation is actually inextricably interconnected. Mm. And we are much more powerful, both when we acknowledge who we are, like we don't like allow ourselves to be aggregated as if we're all the same, but Mm. also have alignment and fight with each other, whether it's for Daybreak Star or it's for, you know, the many other buildings, Coleman School, um, these fights have to be interconnected because white supremacy will do everything it can to grab a few of us, yeah. get us close to power, and then use that as a means for pacifying or shutting down our movements. And I hope that like moving forward where we're at in 2020, after these uprisings were I mean, thousands, thousands of people were in the streets. Mm. I remember one day we had a 12,000-person protest walking the demands of our movement to City Hall with um, Native folks at the forefront, Native women in particular, at the forefront drumming and singing us down from the Cal Anderson play field up to city hall where 12,000 people gathered wow. to deliver the demands of defund the police by 50%, invest in black communities, mm. and free all prisoners. It was probably one of the most powerful moments I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of. And hearing the drums and the music and having the sage and sweetgrass in the air leading the beat mm. of how we walked. Mm together as different people, but all in alignment and in sync to, to the song of liberation mm. was just, I'll never forget that moment.
1: Mm. Um, I feel it like I, you know, just hearing you tell that story. I mean, I, it's like, I, I can see it and I can feel it. And it's still, it's a living that, that moment I think is still alive for so many people. And, um, I want to ask you is, is there something unique about the Seattle context or about what, you know, this kind of showing up for each other as native peoples, as black peoples here that we're not seeing in other parts of the country, you know, like, um, where do you kind of see the lessons that you guys have learned in the, the ground, the, the, the relationship that you have built here? How do you see that playing into the kind of the national scope?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the Pacific Northwest generally is, um, unique. Mm -hmm. Um, where I grew up in Indiana, like you can drive the highway and you you won't see a single sign Mm. for a reservation. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to hear about the Native peoples who live there or really in any place near there as you move through the space. Mm. Whereas uh, something that has always struck me from the moment I moved here in 2004, you drive up and down I-5, you're going to know that you pass in Nisqually. You're going to know where you're, you're about to hit to up, you know, whatever direction you're going, you're going to know who the tribes are. Wow. Um, I think that in itself is just significant about how, how much influence the tribes in this area have yes. on, on the space. And I think that that fuels a lot of how our movements have worked mm-hmm. um, and the work that we do. And also we're open to it. I think mm. having the Black Panther history, Seattle was the second chapter in the U.S. to exist, and having those Black Panthers, folks like Aaron Dixon and Elmer Dixon, already in the forefront of their minds, knowing that uh, native sovereignty and black liberation are are interconnected, and that colonialism and capitalism and imperialism are actually who we're fighting. Mm. Uh, I think in terms of like black community has been a part of like laying that foundation and that groundwork and so i actually have to really like give props to our ancestors and our elders because mm. uh, i think they've been setting the stage for us for mm-hmm. a very long time for us to have moments like this mm. and i don't think like it's new because the civil rights movement happened and aim was very nearby yeah and those two things are are historically connected but also rooted in both being about acknowledgement of people's who people are. Now, I don't think the civil rights movement was able to go as far as it wanted to, right? Because for me, it's about moving beyond civil rights to human rights. But we can't talk about human rights unless we're also talking about land rights and creature relative rights. And I think that's where those things start to meet each other and really start to do the work, analysis-wise, of dismantling this holistic system of oppression. So while I think the Pacific Mm -hmm. Northwest is unique in that regard, um, it is honestly, by design of our elders and our ancestors Mm. for having laid that foundation for us to
0: have that here.
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Mm. Before we close, I just want to ask you, you know, like you've been out here doing this work, (laughs) you know, how are you doing personally? Um, how how are you holding up? How are you taking care of yourself? How's things going with your kids? You know, you do you do a lot of work with, with young people, mm-hmm. and um, how do you how do you stay centered? You know, what are you, some of your wellness practices?
2: Yeah, I mean, right now I'm okay, and I feel like in the midst <laughs> of like a pandemic, uh, an economic recession. A racial justice uprising and like impending climate crisis continuing (laughs) to chase us down like okay is okay you know like we're doing good if we're okay yeah um 2020 was definitely a really challenging year uh and it ended in december with my dad transitioning and Mm. um i think 2020 just had a lot of death Mm. in it um and also just like reminding myself in that that death is not the end of the cycle. It is a transition in the cycle. And so there's this element of like my dad being the farthest away he's ever been and also like the closest he's ever been or we've ever been. Um, And I think that that has been both a beautiful thing and an incredibly challenging thing, but has filled me with insight as a lot of our young folks are navigating um, the world that we're living in Mm. that is hyper distant right now, very isolated Mm. and a lot of folks are grieving Mm -hmm. and so really learning that grieving is not a linear process it it ebbs and it flows and it comes in circles and that's how a lot of our young people are right now dealing in covid they have ebbs and flows and things move in circles Uh, and the zoom life is like i'm over it they're Mm. over it Mm. But there's something really beautiful when you get to make art with people, even if it's at a distance. Mm. And um, in the midst of like the four crises that we're in, there is the possibility of creating something beyond the mess that has actually allowed this to occur. Mm. This, this was not, this is not a natural disaster. The, the things we're experiencing are actually because of the, the, the unhealthy ways that we've been living and we've kind of we've co-created this so if Mm -hmm. we've co-created the disaster we can actually co-create the future Mm -hmm. and that's what I love about teaching and making and building art with young people is the opportunity to manifest and envision the world we want to have we know that stories are powerful we hand stories down they tell us about who we are stories can also help us imagine who we want to be and we can tell people about who we want to be and so um while I'm okay and For the most part a a lot of them are okay right now um we're in a co-creation process Mm. about the repair years the years that are to come where we're going to do things differently and we really like we have the choice right now and so because i work with a lot of young people who are in the criminal punishment system Mm. or other oppressive systems the idea of choice is actually a space of freedom Mm. because it'll it 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 helps us realize we're not locked into to the present moment as it is and we're certainly not locked into a future that's like this moment we can choose to build and do something different it doesn't mean it will be easy but mm-hmm. it can very it will be very much worthwhile um, and that's a major part of my health and healing practice it's just being creative being in creative spaces um learning stories telling stories sharing stories And doing that, not just with my brain or my mouth or my hand, but honestly my full body, You know, healthy practices, which is not easy because when you're just doing okay, we're all looking for a little comfort. Mm -hmm. And so also I would say grace and graciousness. Like we Mm -hmm. have days when our young folks hop on Zoom calls and they don't give a about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I have to have grace in that moment, not Mm -hmm. just for them, but also for myself because i'm tired too and they're tired too and um allowing grace and creating spaces of comfort uh, is is a really important and significant part of that and and finding ways that we can do that at a distance and yet still
1: together Mm. Mm. i want to just share a final kind of quote that and and maybe just ask you to kind of expand on it or, or let us know what you think but you know um Grace Lee Boggs is, is, a, is a figure, a, a, a great, you know, a, a person that continues even though they have transitioned to still, you know, hold so much weight in these movements and in our kind of collective liberation. And so um, Grace said that movements are born of critical connections, right? Mm. Not critical mass. And I think in this moment right now, this season that we're in, connection is what we're really seeking to try to build again, right? And so you're talking about it with your kids. You're talking about it in your own life. You know, I've experienced so much disconnect and, you know, from just the things that have kept me sustained for so long. um, All of us have. And so I want to just ask you to kind of maybe reflect back on this concept of critical connections, maybe just for movement building, but also just literally for life for survival right now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Grace Lee Boggs and the city of Detroit. and mm. You know, uh, that was one of the first, Detroit as a place and learning the different ways to say Detroit mm. and who was uh, on that land was one of the first uh, introductions I had to realizing, oh, snap. This is, <laughs> this is not the name of the place. This is just the name I was taught and the name that was used for erasure so shout out to, to all of the organizers there in the complex movement that's there. Um, and I bring that up because connection does matter. It is at the root, we are social beings. I'm an introvert and to be quite frank, I don't really like people. I love people. I love humans and want us to thrive, but even I need connection. Um, and in this time of like talking to people through my phone or through Zoom or honestly not talking to some people at all, when I was driving up here, um, I used to work in the tribal court here, mm-hmm. uh, the Tulalip Reservation, and I suddenly started to remember all these people I haven't talked to in the last year because I maybe only talked to them at one-off-year events uh-huh. where I run into them, mm-hmm. and none of those events happened this year. So what is it going to be? Will I see those folks in a year from now, in two years? And what will what will our relationship be like? And it started to make me just reflect upon all the people I haven't talked to because I only talk to them at a community event
0: mm. or I
2: only talk to them in an organizing space or I only talk to them because I run into them at the grocery store. That has been, the grocery store has literally <laughs> been in the corner store. Two of the places that if I cannot find a young person, I go there. Because <laughs> one thing is true, we all got to eat. Whether you got money or not, you can get you some food. And so... um just realizing all the places that we go, we're, we're disconnected. Mm. And movements are not about mass. You can get a lot of people in the street on one day, mm. but if those people are not connected to each other, it's literally just one day. It's a moment, not a movement. Mm. And what builds moments into movements mm. is in fact our connection, our care for each other, and what we're pursuing with one another. Otherwise, it's just a moment. Mm. And so I think um with this summer and seeing everything that happened and knowing the number so many collectives and coalitions popped up in the streets Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day people wanted a family to be around
0: Mm -hmm.
2: people wanted a group of relationships to be in and i think that uh auntie auntie grace lee boggs is continuing to just point us in that direction that uh you can have all the marches you want to but if at the end of that march People don't feel more at home or more connected. It's just a moment.
0: Mm-hmm. <whistles> Thanks, Relatives, for listening. And thanks to our team, the All My Relations folks that make this all possible. To Darian Camarillo for editing. Jamie Marquez-Bratcher also edited this podcast. Special thanks to Sierra Sana for original episode artwork. To Lindsay Hightower for our social media management. And to Teo Shantz for doing all the things. All the things. things. (laughs) I think that this episode is so powerful and I'm so grateful to Nikita for joining us and sharing their thoughts. I think Nikita clearly demonstrates that Black liberation and Indigenous sovereignty are both needing one another to continue the work that needs to be done. So as we're imagining and otherwise, and as we're putting together and reframing and rewriting our futures, let us remember that the path forward can only work if we work together and I know, and it sounds cheesy saying it it really <laughs> does like like I feel some kind of way saying that you know because in a lot of ways it feels like rhetoric, but that what we're able to see from Nikita is that when those things can happen, really powerful things really powerful shifts like defunding the police or defunding Wells Fargo and maybe in some ways we can actually begin to see real change and to me that gives me tremendous hope because this work, this racial justice work it's exhausting right (laughs) we get tired of having these conversations the boots on the ground work is tough but when we hear of wins like Nikita spoke about today with this episode my heart feels a little lighter, I feel a little bit stronger I feel like all right, look Stay in the fight because it can be done if we work together.